0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello fellow time travellers, I hope you're well. Every week, from my home here in Stirling, I post a new video on my Patreon site, which helps to pay for the making of this podcast, which is and always will be free. Uh, the last video was about Bessie. One of our ancient, ancient ancestors, 7,000 years old she is. Uh, There's one about the Spartan warriors who inspired the film 300, Gerard Butler. Uh, On the anniversary of the Battle of Britain, I posted a video about the pilots who fought and gave their lives. Anyway, I'm sure you get the picture. There's lots of history and current affairs uh, to get your teeth into and to think over. To get exclusive access to these videos, sign up to my Patreon.com site. Uh, You can find me as Neil Oliver on Patreon, and I'd love to see you there. In the meantime, here's the next episode of my Love Letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. An unforgettable and to some extent unforgivable part of the story of these British Isles. In this episode, A devastating crime is committed in a heart-rendingly beautiful landscape. Driven by greed and the ruthless pursuit of profit, an old way of life is put to death. Aristocratic landowners right across the highlands of Scotland systematically destroyed an ancient way of life, an ancient culture. Clans were obliterated, or next to it, and villages were wiped off the map. As the Highlands were brutally cleared in one of the biggest mass movements of people in all of British history. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles.
1: Hi in the last episode we travelled to Hull to meet one of the brave and tireless opponents of slavery. Where are we this week?
0: Paul, this week's podcast is about another profound wrong uh, that was driven by voracious greed. Men, women and children who had lived in the Scottish Highlands for uncounted generations were all at once ruthlessly swept away to clear the land for profit. We've come to one of the places that suffered profoundly at the violent hands of the landowner. It's the breathtakingly beautiful coastal location of Betty Hill in Sutherland. The love letter this week comes from, well, a place that's described as remote, even though I live in Stirling in the centre of Scotland. It's Betty Hill which is in Sutherland, right up on the far north coast of, of the country of Scotland. Betty Hill is a village, and I'm going to use it today to illustrate the impact of the Highland Clearances, one of the most notorious experiments with social engineering that's ever been undertaken, certainly in the British Isles. And the Highland Clearances, for most people, are synonymous with injustice, inhumanity loss of a way of life, forced emigration. Those are the connotations that most people have. I was struck by Betty Hill because, oddly enough, it's been my sort of philosophy, say when it comes to something like the First World War, to regard it as too big to get your head around, too big to contemplate, because it sweeps up millions, tens of millions of people The First World War involved uncountable numbers of people and and all the statistics and numbers and totals, deaths, bullets, shells, it's all incomprehensible. And to get some kind of sense of what it must have meant, I've made it a practice of trying to look at how it hit individual families. In the case of the Highland Clearances, similarly, it's too big. It involved too many people and it has wrapped around it or it wraps around too much hurt, too much emotion, that I've felt that to get a handle on it, it's better to make it as intimate and local as possible. And when I heard the story of what had unfolded in Betty Hill and the valley of Strathnaver and the communities there that were cleared, it helps me to to make it more comprehensible. It's easier to empathise with because you see it broken down into individual villages, individual families almost. Well, there's there's a funny anecdote within it. I encountered Betty Hill because I was filming there for an episode of Coast the BBC TV series that I was involved with for a long time and we wanted to tell the story of the clearances and Betty Hill was was ideal and there was a group there they reenacted for us the walk from their villages out of the valley and towards Betty Hill now Betty Hill was a town that was built for them it was like a new town and it was built on the coast and it was built by their land owner who was the Countess of Sutherland? And the idea was that the people would leave behind their inland villages and they would go and live at Betty Hill on the coast. And we reenacted the departure. So we'd actually ask the community, the production company had put up posters in village shops and post offices to see if we could round up enough people to make a realistic reenactment of the walk out from the valley. Along the, the A836 road from Nahara, <laughs> for those who want to go and reenact it themselves. And it was taken the route that would have been taken almost exactly by the tenant farmers who were cleared from the land, as everyone knows, to make way for sheep. The clearances, in essence, were about moving uneconomic human farmers away so that the land could be, it was thought, more productively used by flocks of sheep. So it was animals instead of humans. So we rounded up eventually, if you like, about 200 people who agreed to do the walk. And it was quite incredible, because it's, it's a fairly empty part of the countryside. And to see 200 people on that road walking in a long line was quite affecting. And more than one person that took part in it noted, especially the older folk, noted that it would have been a long, long, many a long year since so many people had been on foot on that road and that it did hark back and give a sense of what some of it must have looked like when people were on the move because they were being cleared from the land. So we walked and we filmed and we talked and we had conversations and interviews with dozens of them for the making of the little film and then we turned up at Betty Hill and we were all tired, you know, we'd been at it from early morning and it was now late afternoon and it uh, was sort of, a lot of us walked into a, a bar, a, a hotel to get a drink and a sit down and it was absolutely bizarre because we walked in in the middle of a stag party it was like a hundred young guys who had got bussed there from heaven knows where and they were in the middle of having a stripper there was a stripper, there was a, a young lass that, that, that had stripped and was doing her thing in amongst this being horde of guys and they were all drunk and it was just the sense of dislocation of having moved from the world outside where we had been thinking about the life of the 19th century tenant farmer and the hardship and the pain and the trauma of the move and we'd been hearing all of that and then suddenly we walked into this bar and it was this other world And then I realised, all in an instant, that dislocation was what it was all about for the people. And that I wondered if the gods weren't laughing at me by showing me what dislocation felt like. You know, to go from that that intense world of of hearing those human stories and then into this completely shocking other. It's just an anecdote. It just it was just something that made me think about being dislocated, moving from one reality into another. It just reinforced my sense of of how shocking. The, the clearances must have been, but you know, there you go. Stag do's notwithstanding. Betty Hill, it sits, it has to be said, in one of the most beautiful parts of Scotland, one of the most beautiful parts of Britain. To the west is a sweep of bay, of sand called Torresdale Bay. Nowadays, surfers go there. It's where the River Naver meets the North Sea. Over the years, it's been a famous place for salmon. It's heart-stoppingly beautiful. You turn back from the coast and you look inland and you see all the hills and glens, that landscape that people think about instantly when they hear the word the Highlands. And we think of that place being empty. We think of that landscape being empty, apart from anything but sheep. But of course, we made it like that. Back in the early 19th, the 18th, 17th, 16th centuries, all the way back, that landscape would have been busy with people. Busy with homes, farms, little houses dotted about, villages, communities. But we made it empty, or our ancestors did, by clearing the land in that way. And somebody, uh, uh, oh, a lot of years ago now, said to me one day when we were looking out at the view and we could see sheep, you know, just on the hillside, the way you do. And she said, you could almost imagine it's like maggots on a corpse, these little white shapes moving. And it's a potent image but the fact that everyone associates the Scottish Highlands with emptiness, it's unrealistic. For the longest time, there would have been lots of people there. It was the Highland clearances that made them empty. And it's important to remember that. In the century between about 1760 and 1860, during those hundred years, an estimated quarter of a million people were cleared out of the interior of the highlands, out of the valleys. And it wasn't just the highlands. The highland clearances are famous, but the lowlands of Scotland were cleared as well. All over Scotland, it was the same. Landowners, landholders were turning their backs on human tenants because they had alighted on a more efficient way to exploit the landscape, or so they thought, and make more money. So together, the highland and the lowland clearances amount to one of the biggest mass movements of people in all of British history and in, in a place like Sutherland which is that territory wherein Betty Hill sits in Sutherland it was nothing less than the deliberate demolition the premeditated destruction of an ancient way of life that's what it was all about Sutherland in large part was owned by the Countess of Sutherland Uh, Her name was Elizabeth Sutherland uh, Levison Gower. She was the 19th Countess. And at the time, she presided over an estate of 1.5 million acres. 1.5 million acres in Scotland! It was the biggest privately-owned holding estate in Europe. And she was one of those who, by the early years of the 19th century, had absorbed the idea that the people, her people, as she thought of them, her tenants, were a lazy lot. They had evolved subsistence farming. They planted some crops and they kept some animals and it just kept them ticking over. And the likes of Countess of Sutherland looked out and decided that they were a a -a ragamuffin, untidy lot who could be busier. Who could be more industrious. And it was an idea that she and others like her had acquired from the south. The land owners in England had long since decided and had understood that they owned the land, that it was theirs, it was their personal private property. And that the people living there, you know, lived there at their beck and call. In Scotland, the tradition had always been completely different. The idea of of the clan, the Scottish word clan, is Gaelic, and it basically means children. And the idea of being in a clan meant that the clan chief was the father of the children. And it was the clan chief's responsibility, his privilege, you might say, to look after the people. And the land that they all lived upon was held in common... clan chief didn't believe that he owned the land the tradition was that he had a paternal responsibility to the people i mean you you see it reflected in the fact that for example where the english kings were kings of england the place the king of scotland didn't call himself that robert bruce was king of scots his relationship was to the people He had a fatherly, paternal responsibility for the Scots. And Scotland, the territory, no-one really thought about it too deeply, but if they did at all, they believed that they all shared the land, that it was held in common. The clansmen, subject to each individual clan chief, they owed him loyalty, and he could demand that they would rise in battle on his behalf and they would go into battle against other clans. And they owed him service... But they didn't believe that he owned the land. They all believed that everyone together had the land in common. And so when, in the late 1700s, the idea came from the south that landowners there owned the land and could do with it whatever they wanted. And then there came the day when the likes of the Countess of Sutherland thought that she could put that into action. So when she looked out on her people, the people occupying the land, she had absorbed the idea like landowners in the south, that the land was hers. And when she started putting that into action, the tenant farmers didn't have a legal leg to stand on because nobody owned any kind of contracts, nobody owned any deeds that said they had any rights to the land. So when landowner, like the Countess of Southern, decided that, that the people should do her bidding and move where she sent them, they had no legal recourse. So they were uniquely vulnerable, really, So the idea had been absorbed from the south that these uh, subsistence farmers weren't the most efficient way to use the land and that better would be to move them out to the coast and have them do something else. Put them on small crofts, small plots of land. They could grow some crops, they could grow some food for their families, but they would also have to do other things. They would have to become industrious. It was an economic technique called pinching. They literally allocated on the coast plots of land that were too small So you you wouldn't be able, no family would be able to to grow enough to keep itself. They would have to diversify into other things like fishing, like collecting kelp, which is seaweed, from which could be made soap and other products. But they would have to do other things. So this idea was put into action between 1760 and and into the middle of the 19th century whereby the people were just moved wholesale, off of the land and out uh, out to the fringes, out to the coast and they had no legal recourse against it. And the Countess of Sutherland and her agent was Patrick Seller and he was particularly brutal about the whole business. They were given almost no notice. They had to gather up their belongings and leave, just leave the land. Their houses were burnt behind them so that even if they wanted to a few weeks or a few months later there was nothing to go back to their houses were torched behind them and off they went to the coast in the case of Betty Hill the Countess of Sutherland had laid out had, had constructed this new town and she had the temerity to name it after herself you know she was Elizabeth and she called it Betty Hill But they made no effort to put in the appropriate infrastructure. You know, the people were supposed to go there and become fishermen, but there were no harbours built, no infrastructure was put there, no roads, nothing. There was just land set aside. As I say, these crofts which were deliberately made too small. So the, the people turned up there with whatever they'd been able to carry and they were supposed to start new lives, build homes and get on with it. And it just didn't work. And in many cases, the people famously, obviously those that could find the wherewithal so to do, they just left. They didn't stay in places like Betty Hill. They left and went off to the new world. They got aboard ships. They got themselves to the nearest harbours and to the nearest ports and they boarded ship and they went to places like North America, even as far as Australia, New Zealand because the lives had just become intolerable and impossible where they were. Ironically, although they were replaced with sheep, um, the sheep farming in those glens, it tended to fail because it couldn't compete with the lamb coming in from New Zealand. (laughs) New Zealand lamb. The sheep farmers out there were far more successful and far more efficient. And so ironically, the sheep farming exercise in large part foundered because they couldn't compete with where the people had ultimately been cleared to. So it was all, you might say that it was high-minded, you know, that the, high, the Highland clearances came from a position, you might say, where the, the landowners felt that with their superior intellects and their superior education, that they were doing the right thing. And although they were clearing the people off of the the interior they didn't want them to leave Scotland. They didn't want them to leave the estates. They wanted them to stay there and keep working, you know, and be a continuing source of revenue for the estates. They did intend to retain the people. They just wanted them to move away from the valleys and glens that they had decided were more suitable for the sheep. But it's the law of unintended consequences came in and the people, for their own reasons, found the new lives that had been... Created for them, unlivable, intolerable, and so they took themselves off. But you find in the aftermath that the consequence was was an emptied place. In the case of that walk that I went on with the people, they were the descendants of those who had been cleared. They were directly connected to people whose houses had been burnt, who had been given days' notice to clear off and never come back. And when we spoke to them, the hurt, the bitterness was still there in their voices. It was something that they had internalised, generation after generation, the cruelty and the injustice of the clearances. It had never left them. It was part of their psychology. And, you know, we were just coming out of one glen, one area and between 1814 and 1821 more than 500 families had been cleared out of that glen 500 families 30 villages 30 villages just wiped off the map wow and and when you go there now you know if you park your car on the roadside and you wander down into the heather covered fern covered emptiness you'll stumble over walls walls that were once that encircled fields remains of houses that were once inhabited by these people, but that were cleared. And it's all there, and, and the physical evidence of that clearance is there to this day. But the Countess of Sutherland, her husband had been created, the first Duke of Sutherland. And when he died, Elizabeth had a memorial raised to him, and it's still there, it's this huge column, a hundred foot high stone column on the summit of Ben Benvragi, above Galsby, the village of Galsby. And there's a statue of him on the top of it. And there's a plaque at the base of the column. And it goes on and on. There's you know there's a whole screed about what a caring landlord he had been and that he had provided useful employment for the active labourer and that he had opened wide his hand to the distresses of the widow, the sick and the traveller. It's all nonsense. And it also notes that local subscriptions had paid for the monument, that a mourning and grateful tenantry had paid for it. It was all nonsense. It was all a fiction that the Countess of Sutherland was telling herself.
1: Did this ruthless process start a mass emigration?
0: It didn't necessarily begin with the clearances, but you know Scotland had had a tradition of emigration. The Scots have a reputation for being far-travelled, far-flung for hundreds of years, and it didn't start with the clearances, but that social engineering experiment definitely speeded it up. At the turn of the 19th century, in the very early 1800s, the Sutherland Highlanders, the regiment, the fighting regiment, had been raised from some of the same valleys, and they had marched away to the Napoleonic Wars and the rest. But once the clearances got going, Scotland would just hemorrhage—literally hemorrhage—people. Not consistently, there would be a. There was generally an intense period of, of emigration, and then it would calm down again then there'd be another bulge and another. there'd be another great movement of people. And often it was those who had either the skills or the money or both to get out. People who knew that they could get to America they could get to New Zealand, they could get to the freedom there and get away from the, the conditions in Scotland, that they could make better lives for themselves, and, and so they did. But it's just a part. It's a part of the story. Of Scotland it's a huge part of the relatively modern story of Scotland, that social experiment that turned into something desperately cruel. Rudyard Kipling, a favourite poet of many, he has lines about it, about Scotland, not about the clearances, but he had it that there dwells a wife by the northern gate and a careworn wife is she. She breeds a breed of roving men and casts them over sea. And and so it is, and so it has been. You know, the Scots have been emigrants par excellence. They have gone to every corner of the world, and often they've made those places better as merchants, as as seamen, as as politicians, as ordinary law-abiding citizens. There's five million Scots in Scotland, but there's supposedly fifty million people around the world of Scots descent. The Highland clearances were a part of it, and they are an, an unforgettable and, to some extent, unforgivable part of the story of these British Isles.
1: Was this when the clan system came to an end?
0: The clan system was badly damaged after the the last Jacobite Rebellion. We've talked about Culloden, which was 1746. And in the aftermath of that, there was an understanding from the, the Hanoverian government down south that the Highlander was a potential troublemaker. I mean, they weren't just some ragtag rabble. At various points, especially during the Jacobite Rebellions, they emerged as some of the most potent fighting men in the whole of the country. And Westminster and the rest were justifiably frightened of them. After Culloden, eff- efforts were made to, to make sure that could never happen again. And, and, and it was then that you saw things like the proscribing of the, of the tartan, of the kilt, even of the bagpipes. And there was a, an almost genocidal attempt to just smother and do away with the Highland way of life. So the erosion of that way of life, the deliberate dismantling of it was well underway and then with the agricultural revolution and then the industrial revolution people were made secondary to economics all over Scotland. On the one hand they were sort of sucked into the the new towns the new cities, Glasgow and the rest they were sucked into the the factories there and and they left behind the Highlands But it was already well underway because of social engineering projects like the clearances, which had also been an attempt to move people away and leave a kind of a tabula rasa for a different economic model, i.e. sheep farming. And yes, the aftermath of the Jacobite Rebellions was a deliberate attempt to take apart that culture under the terms of the clearances, the Highland clearances... It was almost collateral damage. I mean, it was driven in large part by the landowners just wanting to get rich. And the damage done to the people and to the culture was to some extent collateral. But yes, there was, in amongst it, woven through it, there was a kind of a contempt and a disdain from landowners who had become increasingly southern in their thinking to look out at the subsistence farmers that old tradition of animal rearing and small scale crop growing and think these people should and could be doing more they could be earning me more money and the experiment with sheep farming was a direct product of that and yes whether deliberately or not it it was the final nail in the coffin of a way of life that by then was centuries old if not thousands of years old And, yeah, the the Highland Clearances finished it off and left the Highlands, the sparsely populated emptiness that people associate with the name now.
1: Did people revolt against this? Was there any fight back?
0: Not really. I mean, isolated incidents. That's why Patrick Sellers, uh, Elizabeth Countess of Sutherland's agent... He was put on trial at one point. An elderly lady that was kind of dragged out of her home and and she died and he was charged with her manslaughter, if not her murder. He was acquitted. And there were incidents, you know, there were fights and there were struggles, but there was no organised resistance to it. But how often down through the centuries do we see that? That even a, a majority population, when they have imposed upon them from above, from those they have previously if not trusted, at least felt subservient to when those authorities tell them to do something. They generally do it. Most people just want to keep their heads down, not get into trouble, hope for the best. Uh, And I think that, that facet of human nature has been exploited again and again and again. It's in human nature for most humans, most people just want a quiet life. They don't want trouble. Just just do what you're told. Don't look him in the eye, just we'll we'll make the best of it. It's a, recurrent, it's a recurrent theme of human nature. Don't make a scene, don't make a fuss, just, you know, we'll sort it out tomorrow.
1: Was there systematic violence from the landowners?
0: Yeah, 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 I mean, people were being, I mean, numerous accounts of the bailiffs turning up at people's doors and the doors barred against them and doors kicked in and people dragged out and, you know, blows exchanged and, People getting beaten with sticks and the butt of a rifle and chased away from their homes, yes, violence absolutely was employed. It was ugly, and in Sutherland, on account of people like Sellers and, and on account of the Countess of Sutherland, you know there, there were places where the clearances were especially cruel, without a shadow of a doubt, and much was the wailing and the and the gnashing of teeth amongst the people carrying their few belongings away as they headed off to lives hitherto unimaginable.
1: That over 200 years later, it still has a resonance, gives some indication of what violent trauma it must have been.
0: We were talking to people on that road. Uh, some of them elderly, grandfathers and grandmothers, and they were there with their with their children and their grandchildren and their great grandchildren. And you know, one or two of them I remember talking to, and their voices were breaking, cracking with emotion, uh, because they had grown up hearing from their own. and their own grandfathers what had happened and that sense of the injustice of it that injustice it bears repeating was, was a product of the fact that for hundreds of years the people of the clan system they didn't believe that anyone owned the land in that way or it was their land the clan had a territory that it defended and there was a chief There was a ruling family and it was the responsibility of the chief to adopt a fatherly role to see to the well-being of his people. Yes, he would ask them to fight for him and to fight for the clan lands against other clans but when it came to the land, they owned it collectively. For many of them, the ownership, it would be like flies arguing about who owned the horse they were buzzing around. It was irrelevant. How could we own the land? That was a tradition that came out of feudalism and other traditions further south where you had Henry VIII who was king of England but the Scottish king was the king of Scots. It's demonstrative of a completely different sense of the relationship between the people and the land. The clan shared the land they lived upon and the clan chief was their father. And when, it suddenly, when he suddenly came forward or she came forward and said, this is mine, they couldn't believe it. It was as though their mother and father had put them out of the house. It was as if from one day to the next they woke up and their mum or their dad said, out. You don't. This is my house, out. What, what do you mean we live here? No, you don't, not anymore, out. And that, that sense of wrongness, of injustice, of the betrayal of an ancient understanding was palpable. So when I, when I walked down that road with those, with those folk and we were talking to them, you could feel it. Men were close to tears as they expressed the depth of feeling, the wounds that had been inflicted upon that first generation who were cleared. And from father to son, mother to daughter, they never forgot and they never forgave. hero of mine, moulded by the Georgian world he lived in. Born on the north Norfolk coast, one of 11 siblings, he joined the Royal Navy at the ripe old age of 12, sailing oceans from the Baltic to Canada. He lost his right eye during the siege of Calvi on Corsica and the use of his right arm three years later at the Battle of Santa Cruz de Tenerife. Swept up by a grand romance with Emma Hamilton. He was a master of naval warfare, sailing to his most famous victory at the Battle of Trafalgar. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter and please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. The music's by Malcolm Goldie, Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these aisles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.